0: You guys doing well? Excellent. Good to have you with us. This is our big finale for our Exodus teaching series. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Exodus chapter 40. Exodus, the way out, life in God's presence is the title of this weekend's message. It's a great ending to a great book. We started at the beginning of the year and we now are finishing it this weekend. Also grab your sermon notes out. The book of Exodus begins in slavery and ends in worship. So this is kind of a summary statement of where we've been and what this book is all about. So it begins in slavery, ends in worship. The point of Exodus is that everyone lives for something. Everyone lives for something, and anything you look to for your ultimate meaning, hope, and happiness in life other than God will control your life and eventually break your heart And um, not until God is the most important and central thing in your life and you are ravished by the beauty, glory, and presence of God are you free. You are not completely free until he has your heart's deepest loyalties and affections. That's the essence of the Christian life. And, um, and so the climax of the story in Exodus is the tabernacle, because the tabernacle is about God as the object of your ultimate worship and living life in his presence. So living life in God's presence is why you were created. You knew that, didn't you? Because we talk about that all the time. So you were created to live life in God's presence, and you were redeemed for that very purpose. Now, listen to me. You gotta get this, I I pound this into you week in and week out, but nothing is more life liberating, soul satisfying, and faith fortifying than living in God's presence and understanding his presence, that we have his presence as believers in Jesus Christ. That's what the ending of this book is all about. This is why it's, it's so critical that we know this. So we come to the end of the book of Exodus, and Moses is setting up the tabernacle for worship. Most of the second half of the book of Exodus is about the tabernacle. And all of this detail about setting up the tabernacle seems almost kind of boring as you're kind of working through all the details. If you've been keeping up with us through this series and trying to read some of the text, it seems boring unless you understand the significance of the tabernacle in the story of Exodus and Old Testament theology. And there's three questions we're looking at here this morning. You can see there on your notes, why is the tabernacle significant? That's important. And then who is the tabernacle ultimately pointing to? You probably can already answer that one because we've talked about that in the past. And then and then the last question is how does all of this apply to us today? And of course, this is where it takes us to this idea of living life in God's presence. That's where we're headed. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's pray once again and ask for God's help as we study his word and work through these notes here this morning so Father God on this Father's Day weekend we know that there has never been or ever will be a father or a parent on earth that absolutely wants the best for their child as much as you want the best for us you demonstrated your love for us in this that while we were still sinners your son Jesus died in our place for our sins the greatest treasure of the gospel, greater than any other benefit the gospel brings is the gift is the gift of your presence in our lives. You are our greatest reward. And when we have you, we have everything. And so as we study your word through the work of your Holy Spirit, may the reality of your presence in our lives be life-giving. Pride humbling, Christ magnifying, love awakening, and joy intensifying like never before. We pray this in Jesus' beautiful name and everyone said, amen. Amen. So take a look at your, uh, grab your Bibles and let's uh, read, I'm going to not read the whole thing, but I'm going to read parts of chapter 40 of Exodus as we come to a big ending here and i'll begin reading chapter forty verse one and the lord spoke to moses saying on the first day of the first month you shall erect the tabernacle of the tent of meeting and you shall put in it the ark of the testimony and you shall screen the ark with the veil so the ark of the testimony is the holy of holies it's where God's presence dwells and then there's this separation there's this veil to remind people that it's our sin that separates us from God and so he's he's instructing him on how to erect the tabernacle how to put it up and he's going to start from the inside and work his way out and as you work through this as you come to verse 9, after he, as he gets this erected, then he's going to anoint it and consecrate it. And then in verse 12, you've got Aaron and his sons who are the priest, and they will be anointed and consecrated as he's instructing them to do here. And then let's continue reading in verse 16. This Moses did according to all that the Lord commanded him, so he did. In the first month, in the second year... On the first day of the month, the tabernacle was erected. So he, first of all, instructed him on how to erect the tabernacle. This is how I want you to do it. Now he's going to begin to do it. He's going to erect the tabernacle. And this is what you see in the text over and over again. Verse 19, as the Lord had commanded Moses. So Moses does exactly as the Lord had commanded him in verse 21. As the Lord had commanded Moses. Verse 23, as the Lord had commanded Moses. Verse 25, as the Lord had commanded Moses. Verse 27, as the Lord had commanded Moses. So He's, he's putting up the tabernacle just as the Lord had commanded. Verse 29, as the Lord had commanded Moses. Verse 32, as the Lord had commanded Moses. Why all of the Repeated statements like this. Well, we saw that last weekend as we were talking about. By the way, if you weren't here last weekend and you didn't hear that message, you need to go online and listen to the message. We talked about really a relationship with God. There's a lot of people that think that they have a relationship with God, but they really don't because they don't even really know what it involves. And we talked last weekend about what it involves to have a relationship with God, and it involves hearing God's word. You got to first of all be able to hear God's word. And then you've got to wrestle to believe God's Word, and then you do God's Word. Those were the three big ideas that we worked through, much more to that, obviously, than what I just said. But, but that's what you see happening here with Moses. He's doing, he hears God's Word, and he's not wrestling so much to believe it, he's doing it, he's moving on it, and he gets it done, and then we come now to... Verse 33, the third part of verse 33. So Moses finished the work. The tabernacle is built. That's significant. Now, guess who shows up? Verse 34 Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. This is amazing. This is overwhelming. God's presence is there in such a powerful way that Moses can't even go into the tabernacle. And and he's overwhelmed with the presence of God. Verse 36... So it's not just that his presence is with them, but also you'll see that his presence is guiding them and leading them and providing for them and taking care of them. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taking up, taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up, for the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day and fire was in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all of their journeys. This is the word of the Lord to us this morning. And so there's a lot here. Let's work through the questions in our notes. And so, from Exodus 25 all the way to Exodus 40, you have, for the most part, details of how the tabernacle is supposed to be designed, built, and then erected, and now it's been put up, the presence of God shows up, and there's a great deal of implications that apply to our life here today. So, why is the tabernacle significant? Why is it so significant? Here it is, and this is kind of a refresher of what we talked about a few weeks ago. We were created to enjoy the riches of God's glory. That's why you're here. That's why you're on this planet Earth, is to enjoy the riches of God's glory, to enjoy, to live your life in God's presence, to have relationship with with God. And uh, we see that in Genesis chapter two all the way to chapter three, verses one through 13. God created heaven on earth, the Garden of Eden, and he put us, humanity, in the Garden of Eden, and he walked with them. They had his presence, they had the glory of God, they had an unmediated, undiluted experience of the presence of God. And therefore, every other relationship was right. So because they could look regularly into the face of their creator and receive all of the acceptance, security, significance they would ever need, therefore, all of their other relationships were right and, and, and uh, their relationship with themselves was inner peace and contentment and joy. Their relationship with each other was perfect. They were naked and unashamed, which meant no hiding, no fear, no blame shifting, mutual love and communication. Their relationship with nature was perfect, no disease or death. I mean, it was heaven on earth, but then something went wrong. Second part of Genesis 3, we've got the next two fill in the blanks on your notes. Man's rebellion against God is the cause of our brokenness. Man's rebellion against God is the cause of our brokenness. I often hear people will say, well, I reject God because, and I don't believe there's a God because look at all the suffering, look at all the pain. Well, he's not the cause of all the pain and suffering. We are because we rebelled against a holy, righteous God. All human problems are symptoms, and our rebellion and subsequent separation from God is the cause. The reason for all the misery, all the effects of the curse, which are spelled out in Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 through 24, all the effects of the curse is that we are not reconciled to God. That's what's fundamentally wrong with this planet Earth. And so here's the, here's the key, so the tabernacle, here's the next point on your notes, the tabernacle is God's way of providing a way back into his presence. So that's really the purpose, the purpose of the tabernacle is for us to find our way back into God's presence. The glory of God, the presence of God, the face of God is the ultimate experience. That's what we were created for. We see Moses, his hunger for it in Exodus 33. Remember when he said, show me your glory. Remember he was given the option along with the the Israelites because God said, okay, I'm gonna go ahead and take you to the land of promise, the promised land, land of milk and honey, success, all the pleasure, all the enjoyment you'll ever want, but I'm not going with you because I'll destroy you because you guys are way too sinful, but I'll send you there with uh, an angel of the Lord, not the angel of the Lord, which would be Jesus Christ, but, but an angel of the Lord And what does Moses, uh, he declines on that offer. He goes, no, 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 we want your presence. And it's almost as if Moses says this. It's almost like, I mean, it almost seems crazy in our uh, American culture because we tend to choose popularity and success and money and wealth and all these things over and above God. And we see that happening in our culture today. But he doesn't choose that. He's actually saying, no, we would rather wander around in the wilderness with your presence than to go into the promised land without your presence. Do you hear what he's saying? He's he's really kind of almost like he's quoting uh, Psalm 8410. Better is one day in your presence than a thousand elsewhere. And I, I was thinking about this. Your worst day with God is better by far than your best day without him. And that's the point that he's making here, that he wants us really to understand. Show me your glory. I need your glory. And the tabernacle is God's way of providing a way back into the presence of God, the glory of God, the presence of God, the face of God. Those are all synonyms, and it's the ultimate experience. And what that means is that all the pleasures, all the joys, all the beauties, all the love you've ever sought and experienced, in this world is a raindrop compared to the ocean of pleasure joy beauty love that you will experience in the presence of God partially in this life and fully in the life to come that's the point that he's making there I mean it's, it's quite spectacular that I, I, I would rather have your I would rather live a life of misery and pain if I have your presence I can face anything I want your presence I want your face I want your glory And so the significance of the tabernacle is that it is God providing a way back into his very presence to experience his glory. And what, what you see in the building out of the tabernacle is that you will see there are cherubim and palm trees everywhere on the curtains and on the veils and on the doorposts and pomegranates on the hymn of the holy garments for the priest. Why is that? Because the tabernacle is a prototype of the Garden of Eden and God is at the center of it. The Holy of Holies, the Ark of a Covenant, and God is bringing us back into relationship with him to heal our brokenness. Now... Uh, Ezekiel a prophet Ezekiel 48 the prophet Ezekiel had a vision that the tabernacle is not is is just a sign it's a it's a sign and a shadow of the real thing the ultimate tabernacle that is coming and he he talks about that he prophesies that in ezekiel 48 there is a temple coming and it will be enormous and it will be a temple in which all people every nation not just the high priest and jews will be able to go into the holy of holies but all people will be able to enter into the holy of holies that's what he prophesies all of us will be able to go in and experience the very presence of god and become whole So who is he talking about there? he's talking about who is the tabernacle pointing to. That's the next question. Who's the tabernacle pointing to? Well, it's pointing to, you guys know that, the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at John 1.14. It's on your notes also. It's up on the screen. So John is writing, and he says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Who's he talking about there? He's talking about Jesus. And you'll notice that he uses this word. He's not using it kind of coincidentally or accidentally, but he uses the word dwelt here, and the word dwelt means tabernacled. He tabernacled among us. He's making a point here that Jesus came and he tabernacled among us and with us. Now, Jesus said some pretty outrageous things, but only one thing was dragged out at his trial and led to his execution. Matthew 26, 61 tells us what it is. And this is a person, they're making this accusation at Jesus' trial towards Jesus. And it says this This man, Jesus said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. Who's he talking about there? He's talking about himself. So that's the accusation they made against Jesus, and Jesus is talking about himself. Jesus is saying, I am the temple, and through my death and resurrection, you will have access to God, is what he's saying. So he tabernacled among us, and, um, and he says, in fact, destroy the temple of God, destroy me, and it will be rebuilt in three days. I'm going to resurrect from the grave, and I'm the one that's giving you access to God. Here's your fill-in-the-blank on your uh, notes there. When Jesus says, I am the temple, he is not only saying that he is God, but that he is the way into the very presence and glory of God. It's pretty, pretty significant when you consider what most other major religions and cults say. Most major cults and religions deny the deity of Jesus, first of all. And anybody that tells you that they have connection with God or they talk to God, they're, they're not talking to God or have connection with God unless they've gone through Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ is the only way. In fact, Jesus said that in, in John fourteen six, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. He said that and so there's no other way it's not all roads lead to god they don't there's only one road that leads to god and it's through the lord jesus christ the bible is really clear with that and uh, i know we live in a very pluralistic culture uh, of tolerance and and i think that we do have the freedom of, of religion but the the truth is the bible says jesus is very clear with this that he's the only way he's the only way to have this connection with, with the Father. And he is not only the very glory of God in the holy of holies, but he is the way to God by being, by being the basin, the altar, the bread, the lamp, the priest, and the sacrifice. He's everything that t- the temple represents. So anytime you're studying through the Old Testament, and particularly as you're studying through the tabernacle, every part of the tabernacle ultimately points to Jesus. If you don't get to Jesus, you've missed the big idea, the big point of the tabernacle. And by the way, When you study through the Old Testament, it should take you to Jesus because the the Old Testament predicts the Messiah, the New Testament presents the Messiah to us. And so they work together. Important to keep that in mind. Now, here's a good question for you to ask the person next to you. It'll pop quiz time. When Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden, what is put at the gate to paradise? To keep people out of the garden. Turn to the person next to you and see if they know the answer to that. What was put at that gate to keep people from going back into the garden? So, if you answered that, uh, a cherubim with a flaming sword, you got the right answer. How many got that answer? How many uh, said that? Not very many of you, huh? Okay. Now that you said it, yeah, okay, I got that one. Okay. So, so here's what it's saying. There's a message in that, in that alone. The only way back into the presence of God is to go under the sword. That's what it's saying. Because God is just, someone must pay for all the sins. And so, that, therefore, once a year when the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies, the blood of an animal sacrifice had to be made. And, of course, the blood of the, the animal sacrifice was to point to the ultimate blood of the sacrifice of the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now, when did the glory come into the tabernacle for Moses? Well, the answer to that is Exodus 40:33, the third part of 33. When Moses finished the work... Next point on your notes, when Jesus died on the cross, he said, it is finished. It is finished, John 19, 30. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom matthew 27 51 so this veil that separated the people so the rest of the temple where all the people hung out was separated from the holy of holies this the very presence of god And that veil represented that it's our sin that separates us from god but because of what jesus christ did on the cross the veil was torn in two from top to bottom and the reason why that's documented that way. It's because it was humanly impossible for that to happen. Anybody know how, how high this veil was or this curtain was and how many inches thick it was? Anybody want to guess? It was 60 feet high, 4 inches thick. And so it was humanly impossible for someone to rip that from top to bottom. God did it. God did it because of the sacrifice of his son for you and I. And so because God is just, someone must pay for all the sins, but because God is also love, his son paid for all of our sins. He paid for all of our sins. And so here are the implications, Hebrews 10, 19 through 22 Take a look at this uh, text. It's up on the screen. It's also there in your notes. This is absolutely wonderful. If this could, if this could get down in, into your heart, you would never be the same. If you could understand how you have access into the holy of holies, and you can have the very presence of God in your life, and this is what he says: Hebrews ten nineteen through twenty two. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus the Holy of Holies the only person that could go into the Holy of Holies was the high priest once a year and he had to have bells on his robe anybody know why he had to have bells on his robe and they also said tradition says that they put a rope on his ankle because if he didn't go through all the ceremonial washing and he was not perfect in God's eyes as he had established through all the ceremony that God's presence would strike him dead. And they would how would they know that he was dead? Well, they wouldn't hear the bells ringing anymore. And so then they would nobody dare go in there to get him, to retrieve him. They would pull him out, okay? <laughs> and then they would say, "Next. Who <laughs> wants to go in now?" Uh, think... But that's that's pretty crazy. But this is what it's saying, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, I mean, there's, there's this amazing cleansing that takes place in our life. So he sets us free from the penalty of sin. He will never, ever, ever hold our sins against us. But then he sets us free from the power of sin working in our lives also. So the, the first way, when he sets us free from the, the penalty of sin, it's called justification. But then he also works in our life, and it's called sanctification, where he begins to work in setting us free from the very power of sin working in our lives as we walk with him, as we get to know him. Now, how does this apply to us today? If Christ is the tabernacle and has opened a way into the presence of God, how do we connect with, with it? How do we connect with him? Three practical things. Here's the first one. We have access to God by grace through faith in Christ's finished work. That's, that's a fact. That's established for us. That's what we need to learn from this. And so Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, it says, for by grace are you saved through faith, and this is not of yourselves. It is a gift from God, not by works, so that no one can boast. We all wanna to go to heaven, we all wanna have a relationship with God, we all wanna know that we have his presence in this life as we navigate the difficulties in this fallen world. So how can we be sure of that? Well, it's by grace through faith in Christ. It's not by your works, it's by Christ's works. What he did for us, it's, it's absolutely amazing. And this is what separates Christianity from all the major cults and religions of our world today. Everything else, study them. Study them out, compare them to Christianity. Christianity is a grace righteousness. It's a gift righteousness. Every other belief system is a works righteousness. They will give you a list of rules that you need to keep, and the good are in and the bad are out. But God doesn't give us a a list of rules. He gives us his son, Jesus, who died in our place for our sins, and the humble are in and the proud are out. All you need is need. That's all you need. Praise God. And you recognize that. That's why we sang that last song. I need you every hour, God. I need you. I'm desperate for you. By the way, if you don't feel that way, you're out of touch with reality. You really are. And you've got probably a lot of pride working in your life. But when you, and typically, you don't come to terms with that until you really go through some really hard times and difficult, and then you realize, oh my goodness, I really do need him. Yeah, you always did. You just didn't, you weren't aware of that. And it's when you go through the difficult times, you begin to realize that, or when you, when you face death, or you lose a loved one to death, or, or, or any number of things, then you realize, hey, wait a minute, there's, there's gotta be more to life. Yes, there is. You were created to live in his presence. You were created to know him. You are created to experience his glory deep in your heart. And so we have access to God by grace through faith in Christ's finished work. And so because we are saved not by our works but Christ's works, that this eliminates pride and fear. Think about this. How in the world could I ever feel superior to anyone? Because I was so sinful, Jesus had to die for me. There was no other way. But how could I ever feel inferior to anyone? He loved me so much, he wanted to die for me. So that gets rid of, uh, that eliminates pride, towering. It also eliminates cowering, the cross. And it gives us this, this beautiful balance of humble confidence in Christ Jesus. Look at this verse. 2 Corinthians 4, 6, for God who said, this is what happened in your heart. Those of you that are believers, this is what happened in your heart. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Where's the glory of God? In the face of Jesus Christ. And God gave us that light. By the way, there's two verses before this verse, it's 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4. it says, the God of this world, speaking of Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Lostness is blindness to the glory of Christ. So when, when you get excited about the glory of Christ and all that he's done for you and you've got friends that, eh, it's folly to them, it's because they don't have eyes to see. They've been blinded by our adversary. And you need to pray that those blinders would be lifted so that God's light would shine in their heart and reveal the glory of God to them. And that's what, he's, that's what he's talking about here. And this is what's amazing is that the same divine glory that would have been fatal to Moses on contact, Exodus thirty three twenty 20, remember? He said, show me your glory. And God said, no one can see my face and live. So the same divine glory that would have been fatal to Moses on contact now comes into the hearts of those pardoned by Christ. Holy of holies, right? Right? In my heart, in your heart, right here this morning with us. So, individually, corporately, we have the presence of God. And so, here's the next point on your notes Intimacy with God is an enchanted reality in a disenchanted world. So, it's more than just having access to God. We can cultivate intimacy with God. And intimacy with God is an enchanted reality in a disenchanted world. And so, when you look at the end of the story of Exodus, it's absolutely I love it. It's beautiful. But um, he doesn't just dwell with them in the tabernacle, but he leads them and he guides them and he satisfies them even as they're wandering through difficult times in the desert heading towards the promised land. So they have a pillar of fire by night, cloud by day, manna from heaven, bread from heaven. We saw that in Exodus 16. And even when they're out of water, he gave them water from the rock, Exodus 17. And so the same thing is true with us. Not only do we have his presence, but he leads us, he guides us, he satisfies us, he takes care of us. Look at 2 Corinthians 3, 17 through 18. I've been meditating on these two verses, and oh my goodness, they're they're spectacular verses. Now the Lord is the spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So if you have the spirit of the Lord in you, living with you, you have freedom, and that's what he's saying, and this is how that freedom begins to take place in our life. And we all with unveiled face. So he's speaking somewhat metaphorically. Remember when Moses came off the mountain, he had to veil his face because it was kind of freaking the people out because of the glory of God? It was so so profound. But what he's talking about here, he's saying, hey, these folks, their faces were veiled in a lot of ways. They didn't see what we now see post-resurrection of Christ. And all that Christ has accomplished for us. And he says, we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. What's the image that he's talking about we're being transformed into? Christ-like image. We're becoming more and more like Christ. And we talked about it a couple weeks ago. It is in the beholding of his glory we become whole. So the Christian life is not a a call to behave. It's a call to behold. Behold the glory of God. It will will change your behavior, believe me. But it's in the beholding of his glory, being captivated. He has your heart's deepest loyalties and affections. It's in the beholding of his glory we become whole. And and notice, it's it's a process. He says from one degree of glory to another. So don't get frustrated just because you can leave a service and get upset and and not respond appropriately to life circumstances, but you do want to see progress. And so the key is is to keep beholding God. You want to be like Jesus? Absolutely. Focus less on being like Jesus and more on being with Jesus. Spend time with him. That's what will transform you. It's when you fill your heart up with his beauty and glory, it's going to change you. It will transform you. I love this, uh, what Charles Spurgeon said years ago in one of his sermons. He said, the love of God has been so overpoweringly experienced by us on some occasions that we have almost had to ask God to stop The delight, because we could not endure anymore. If God hadn't shielded his love and glory a bit, we would have died for joy. Do you hear what he's talking about there? He's actually talking about Psalm 1611, the Psalm 1611 experience. In his presence is fullness of joy, and at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. We're not talking just heaven. We're talking A slice of heaven on earth with his presence. I think he's also talking about 1 Peter 1.8. Remember, Peter was talking to second-generation Christians, and he said to them, though you have not seen him, you love him, and though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. You can't even put words to it. You're so overwhelmed by his love and so filled up with joy, and you have a joy in you that no amount of suffering can ever take away from you. That's, that's what he's talking about here. So let me ask you this. How have your personal devotions been going lately? Are you having from time to time those experiences where you're overwhelmed with his presence? What I mean by personal devotions is your Bible study and your prayer time. Do you have those moments when you're just, oh, my goodness, I can't believe that you love me the way you love me, God. And maybe, maybe you haven't. I would begin to pray for that. Show me your glory, God. I'm desperate for your glory. I want, I want to have that experience. I want to be so overwhelmed by your love. I have to say, stop. No more. I'm going to die if you keep pouring your love into my heart. Even as Charles Spurgeon said. How are, you doing? how are you doing in learning how to practice the presence of God? Do you realize you have his presence? Listen to what... Uh, it's a, it's a great quote I love from A.W. Tozer. One of my favorite books by him is The Pursuit of God. Listen to what he says. For millions of Christians, God is no more real than he is to the non-Christian. Over against all this cloudy vagueness stands the clear scriptural doctrine that God can be known in personal experience. A loving personality dominates the Bible. But why do the very ransomed children of God know so little of the habitual, conscious communion with God which the scriptures seem to offer? The answer is our chronic unbelief. God and the spiritual world are real, but sin has so clouded the lenses of our hearts that we cannot see. The great unseen reality is God. And that's very closely related to the, the, the language that I often use that, that intimacy with God is life's most satisfying reality. Intimacy with God is life's most satisfying reality. In fact, I believe that the normal Christian life is to want this more than you want anything else. His presence, to have a sense of his presence on your heart. And I want this for you and I want this for me because it's available it's available through the ultimate and perfect tabernacle priest and sacrifice the Lord Jesus Christ he's made a way into the Holy of Holies for all of us that when we come to Jesus by grace through faith in him we have access into the throne room of God absolutely amazing Intimacy with God is life's most satisfying reality that gives you the ability to get through your worst days and to let go of your best days. Your circumstances actually matter far less to your happiness than you think. I know if I were to ask you, what would make you happy, oftentimes we would say something about our circumstances or the people in our lives or the things that we're having to deal with. But your circumstances actually matter far less to your happiness than you think. It is learning how to practice the presence of God that matters most to your happiness. And this is what it will do. As you begin to practice his presence, this is what it will do. Here's our last point on our notes. This will turn us as a community of believers into a place of beauty. And the community of believers is the tabernacle, 1 Corinthians 3.16. Now, there's two places in 1 Corinthians where Paul says that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit, and he's speaking to us as individuals, but then here in 1 Corinthians 3.16, he's talking to us as, as a corporate group of believers. So I believe that I do have the presence of God with me, but there's a dynamic of his presence that you will experience in community with others that you will not experience by yourself. And so there's, a, there's almost a, a synergy, uh, an exponential kind of presence of God that we can experience within community. And that's why he says in 1 Corinthians 3.16, do you not know that you're, you are God's temple and, and that God's spirit dwells in you? And then he, he talks about that we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, 1 Peter two nine. So what should be uh, the characteristic that would mark our lives as we come together? And I, I put it down on your notes. I think it should be love. And I gave you the love chapter there and the characteristics of that. John thirteen thirty four 34-35 says... By this, all men will know that you are my disciples by your love for one another. And so this is what it should look like here. Day in and day out, week in and week out, just as the Israelites worked hard to make every detail of the tabernacle brilliantly beautiful, precious stones and metals and gorgeous curtains incredible colors, we should exercise the same effort to show the world how the presence of God among us brings wholeness to our lives and makes our relationships beautiful with one another and how we relate to one another, how we get along, how we love each other, how we have relationships across racial lines, and how we share our time and our talents and our treasure with each other in and through a local church family like Desert Breeze. We are to give people a taste of heaven on earth so that they will have a taste for heaven and the one that will make heaven heaven, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. (laughs) Praise God. Praise God. Let's prepare our hearts for communion this morning. Would you bow your heads with me? So thank you, Jesus, for bearing in your body all our punishment, guilt, condemnation, blame, fault, and corruption as our ultimate and perfect tabernacle, priest, and sacrifice so that we might stand... Before a great and holy God forgiven, reconciled, justified, accepted, celebrated, and the beneficiary of unspeakable and glorious promises, the greatest of these is the gift of your presence. Make this real to our hearts through communion, we pray, in your beautiful name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. We've got three stations here. We've got a station in our overflow for you folks. And so make your way up. Make sure you grab both of the cups. They're double cup. Take it back to your seat, and I'll walk us through the process. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-three through 26. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread together. And in the same way also he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's drink together. It's through his broken body and shed blood we have access into the Holy of Holies you have his presence. I would encourage you this next week, cultivate, cultivate that, that intimacy with him. Intimacy with God is life's most satisfying reality. It's an enchanted reality and a disenchanted world. There's nothing, nothing quite like it. I love it. It's my favorite part of being a Christian, that I have his presence. Leading, guiding, satisfying, taking care of me. I'm going to invite my wife up. She's in here somewhere, I'm sure. Nancy, are you here? There you are. Come on up here. This is my sweet wife. And uh, we, one, we wanted to say that uh, thank you so much for giving us the opportunity to uh, get recharged and to take this sabbatical. We, we appreciate it greatly. And uh, we love you guys, too. Thank you so much. We will, uh, thank 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 you, thank you. Thank you, thank you very much. We appreciate you guys, we really do. We're gonna miss you. And uh, we will be back in September to to start a brand new teaching series. At that time, through the Book of James, we're going to be going through the Book of James at that time. But you're not going to want to miss anything here. We have a lot of things in store for you during the hot summer months. And uh, we're going to kick off a teaching series on emotions. You can see up on the big screen, screen there, getting a grip of your heart and mind. And so we'll kick it off next week talking about that, what that looks like, how we work through our emotions. We're we're in a culture today that's really messed up when it comes to our feelings. And so we're going to talk about that. In a couple of weeks, we're going to talk about uh, anger. So if you're really angry about us leaving, then you can can work through that. And then after that, if you're depressed, we'll talk about depression. That'll be the third week into the teaching series. So we'll talk about depression. But uh, please pray for us. And we're gonna pray for you, and here's our prayer for you, is that, that we pray that out of his glorious riches that he may strengthen you with power in your inner being by the Holy Spirit so that Christ may dwell in your hearts. You practice his presence. And that we pray that you will be rooted and established in his love so that you will be able to grasp along with all of God's people the depth, the height, the width, the length of his love, this love that is beyond our wildest dreams, how much he loves us, beyond our understanding, and to be filled up with the fullness of our Savior in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. Love you guys. God bless you.